Please turn with me in Scripture to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophet sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do that, not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you These things in the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. As we've said, I think many times, This book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first verse, Revelation 1.1. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it certainly contains many events that are going to happen. As we noticed last time, these are events that are going to happen soon. There's great urgency to this word, to the things that are in this book. It tells us things. But if there's nothing that we, uh, if there's nothing else that we, don't see, if we can't see this in the details, perhaps just in the large picture, we understand that Christ is the one who is bringing about all these things. He is the Lord of history. He is the one who is on the throne, and he is the one who is bringing about the consummation, 
the continuation, the completion of the work of redemption, and eventually the end of all things. And therefore, because of that, ultimately all those events are pointing us to Christ himself. That's what this revelation is about. And beyond those events that point beyond themselves but to the Christ who's doing them, we also get from time to time these glimpses, these pictures of Christ more particularly and directly. And uh, most importantly, I suppose you remember that, that wonderful description that was given in the first chapter in Revelation 1.13 and the next few verses. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Now, what are the main things that come across in such a description? Well, at the very beginning of it, we have this statement that we are told that this one is like the son of man. Now, that term has a significant history in Old Testament prophecy, in the, in the scripture as a whole, and we could spend a long time talking about it, but one thing that certainly comes across, that being the son of man means, is that he has a history. He is not from nowhere. He's not de novo, created just out of the imagination of, of someone yesterday, as we very often get the idea of, for instance, the Antichrist. Now, in the end, all these things are revealed to be from the serpent of old, but they purport to be something else. And there's something that suddenly appears on the scene of history. And there is no, no root to it. No real and true history. Well, that's not like what Christ is. He certainly has a history. He's not from nowhere. He is the son of man. And as we're going to see, he is therefore descended both in his human and in his divine natures from the very best and most illustrious of fathers. And then there's all that imagery of his appearance. All these seven elements, and maybe with the the exception of the description of his voice, which is like many waters, but even they very often convey brightness and light, all of it has to do with how wonderfully bright and brilliant he is. The golden band, if you imagine, even as we have brilliant sunlight now, you imagine a golden band, how, how bright that would be, and hair white like snow, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like fine brass refined in a furnace, in his right hand seven stars, even the sharp sword that's from his mouth, that shirt, if you've seen a, a sharp sword, you know how bright it can be, and, and mainly his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength, that's the great high point of that description, his countenance, his face, the expression on his face, it was like the sun shining in its strength. It's all about brightness. And then we have at the end the statement, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Now throughout Revelation we have seen these themes over and again in various ways. We've seen the fact that this son of man this Son of God, the Lamb of God, the one who is given for this great task of redeeming mankind. We see his great works. We see the things that he does, that unlike the, the things on earth that are so dark and the darkness 
of sinful mankind and the darkness of the unholy trinity of the of the antichrist and the, and the beast and satan himself he is light and brightness and brilliance and perhaps more than anything else in all revelation from the very beginning to the very end we have the repeated statement i am the first and the last and in times of great fear this is the statement do not be afraid i am the first and the last that is the portrait of christ that we are given now we must remember just how practical revelation is we have to remember it was written for a um, certain churches these seven churches that were in particular difficulties their situation of living in such doubt and such uncertainty and facing persecution from wicked men and the wicked world tempted to compromise in their own hearts in their own midst difficulty and the possibility of falling away of what use was this portrait which is sustained throughout the whole book and coming again to its summation and conclusion here on the the final chapter what use is this picture of Christ to such a people of what use is such a picture to God's church for all, all time and even today what use is it to you that you have such a Christ that you follow such a lord that this is the one who is that your faith is in and whose hand your fate rests what difference does it make what difference should it make to you does it make a difference that this root this one who is the root of david is your king when you live in such a dry land he is the root and offspring of david does it make a difference that he's the morning star when you live in such darkness and do you, does it make a difference to you that he's the eternal in the midst of such uncertainty and and change well i found it difficult to sum all these things up into one one thing it's all about christ as the main subject here but i suppose if anything you you might even just focus on christ being the bright and morning star because in various ways it relates to the other aspects of these things well, what does it mean then that he's this bright and morning star well three things the root in a dry land as i mentioned second the morning star in the midst of darkness and third the eternal in the midst of uncertainty the root in a dry land the morning star in the midst of darkness and the eternal in the midst of uncertainty as we think of first the root in a dry land it says in verse 16 i am the root and the offspring of david now this is related of course to him being the son of man that's the same thing that we had at the beginning he is the son he is rooted he has a history in fact he's descended from the most illustrious of fathers both in his human and divine natures as i mentioned he is physically speaking the descendant the offspring of david you know that's not just a minor thing it's amazing actually how much of scripture is devoted to this particular story this particular aspect of christ's identity of him being the son of david what is you know if we turn to the new testament what is the very first verse of the new testament it's matthew 1:1 the book of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david and the identity of this gospel is of a genealogy and the one thing that this genealogy is demonstrating among all things is that he is the son of david 
Now, uh, just to qualify him for the messianic office, he had to be a descendant. He had to be one in the line of David, in the covenant with David. That promise given that it would never fail to be a son of David upon the throne of Israel. And that was the thing. And so he had to be a physical descendant. And Jesus was. And that's why throughout the Gospels, the people rightly recognized Jesus as a son of David. In Matthew 9, 27, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Or in Matthew 15, 20, 22, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon depressed, uh, um, possessed. That's the thing. He's uh, a son of David. But more than just being a son of David, which was important, which qualified for them for the office, they recognize he had that qualification. More than that, there's also recognition that he is the son of David. Another way of saying the Christ. One of these many, many descendants of David would become the Christ. And that's what is said then in Matthew uh, 12, 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and saw and said, could this be the son of David? They knew he was a son of David. The question was, was he going to be the son of David? And as he continues to do these, these mighty acts, which demonstrates that he's acting with the authority and power of almighty God, they begin to think, could this be the one? Could this be the son of David that we've been waited, waiting for? Well, that's the culmination in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Later on in that very same gospel in Matthew 21, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And just to make sure that we don't miss the point, notice that the Pharisees themselves and the religious leaders did not miss that point. They understood the significance of these things. They understood what the people were proclaiming. Because in verse 15, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They understood what this meant. These people had rightly identified the Christ, the one who has come, the one who was going to save his people. And they were right. So he was the son of David. But the thing about this particular son is that he was no mere man. He is David's greater son. It goes well beyond simply being of the family of David. Or even that one particular descendant upon whose David's crown and greatness would be bestowed as if it were simply in David's gift to give to one of his descendants. More than that, Christ is David's greater son. Remember that situation later on in the Gospels in Matthew 22, actually, 41. It's also, by the way, in Mark 12 and, and Luke 20, but in, in Matthew 22:41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Yeah, you're right. It's the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make you make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? You see, 
And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. How could it be that some father, and everyone knows that the father has preeminence over the son, how could it be that the, the father is calling the son Lord? The only reason why that this great King David would ever call his son Lord is because he knew that he would be the Christ, the son of God. He would not just be his own son, but he would also be the son of God. Because his lineage does not just come from a man however great. And David was a great man. He was a man after God's own heart. He was the greatest of the kings. This picture of Christ. But he was not Christ himself. Christ himself would physically have his descendant, his, uh, his lineage from David, but he would be the son of God. You see, Christ is the root. He is also the root of David, the creator of David. Isaiah 11:10. In that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now Jesse, of course, is David's father. He's not just the root of David, he's the root of David's father because he is the root of all men. He is the creator. He is the one who spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. He is the one who grasped that that dust that he had created and breathed life into it and made Adam. And he is that one when the Pharisees were speaking to him about who he was and he said, before Abraham was, I am. He is the greater son because he is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. God the son. Now, as we think of both of these things, we have to understand just how perfectly him being the son of man, him being the son of David, the root of David, all these things together point both to his perfect divinity and also to his perfect humanity. You know, one of the things that, as I was looking through these, struck me is this prophecy in Isaiah 53 two, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire. And we've mentioned many times how this is pointing to Christ's humility. Christ was not like what you or I would think of in some glorious king. And just physically speaking, he was so impressive that we would be forced to worship him. It's not like that. He had no beauty or, tender, or, or, or comeliness, form or comeliness, that so we would desire him. But notice right before that, in that same verse, as a root out of dry ground. Because truly, when he came into this world, it was a dry ground. This people Israel, whom God had given his word, had given all the ceremonial law that would point to Christ, there was no fruit from it. There was no green leaf even. There's no spiritual life, but just deadness. And all of a sudden, there is a root. And the wonderful thing about a root is you have the source of life and of life-giving water and nutrients in yourself. And this root could come even in this dry land. Now, at the time he came, just like a root isn't very beautifully, physically attractive, we didn't see all the rest that was going to come from him. We didn't see his glory. But yet... There in his humanity, in his state of humiliation even, this source of life appeared in a dry and thirsty land. He lived among us in this world as a root out of dry land. But of course, later on, we see him in all of his brilliance and perfection 
particularly in Revelation, of David's greater son, the one on whom all these prophecies were fulfilled. Well, he is the root. Secondly, he is the morning star in the midst of darkness. Verse 16, I am the bright and morning star. There's so many things that we could say there. Of course, the natural picture is just of the morning star. And the idea then of there being in the heavens immediately before the, um, the dawn breaks, as the dawn is beginning to come and reflected light is coming through and some, most of the other stars are disappearing, but we see this one and we know that soon enough the sun will shine in all of its brightness, this fixed and beautiful point in the sky. Now, in terms of prophecy, there's always so many, much prophecy to go through, isn't there? But think about this one. Do you remember the story of Balaam in the Old Testament? I don't know if you remember. He's the one, this, uh, this pagan prophet that God yet used to be his mouthpiece, the one that the donkey had to rebuke. Do you remember that? The, the donkey, the mute donkey that couldn't speak, spoke to him and rebuked him. Well, Balaam himself was like that mute donkey. He wasn't anything special. He was a pagan and a sinner but yet God used him um, to declare his word to this pagan people, to rebuke them. That's what he was primarily being used. So even when he has been called on to curse the nation of Israel, because the nation of Moab was an enemy of Israel, and he was being hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel, even when he was being hired to do that, he couldn't do it, because the Spirit of God was upon him to declare the truth. And one of the many things that he says he actually declares the truth of Christ in the midst of all these things. Truly remarkable. It says in Numbers twenty four sixteen, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him. Who is he talking about? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And Edom shall be a possession, Seir also, his enemy shall be a possession. When Israel does valiantly, out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. This one that's going to have dominion, this one who is going to be the ruler of all things, a star shall come out of Jacob. He is speaking of Christ, this great star that was going to come. Well, many other things like that. But the idea of the appearance of a star in the sky in a place of darkness, that's Christ. Isaiah 58, 8. Your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. It is the glory of Christ, a particular thing given to Christ to be that great star. This light, great bright and morning star in a place of darkness made all the more glorious because of all the great darkness around him. Now, one of the things about Jesus Christ is that he came to save sinners. One of the things about Christ is he's not just here to conquer, he's here to save. And he's offering, ultimately, himself to us. What is given to us in the gospel? It's a wonderful thing in our, um, in our catechism. It says, as Christ is offered in the gospel, because that's what is being offered when we put our faith in Christ. Christ himself is offering himself. In Revelation 2.26, then, putting these things together, 
He who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give, the, uh, give power over the nations. The, he shall rule them with an otter, rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as also I have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. Well, who's the morning star? He says, I'm the great and morning star. And the greatest of gifts that you could possibly have is to be given this gift of Christ himself. And Christ says, I will give you this gift. It is in my gift to give myself to you as, you, as he is indeed offered to us in the gospel. You know, this idea of, of Christ is encapsulated also in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This same God who commanded light to come out of darkness, that is what Christ did when he created this universe, when he spoke that words, let there be light. So it is in his power to, to make light in our hearts so that we can see his son, see him for his beauty and glory, and want to receive him as our savior. That's in his power, that's in his gift. Christ is this great, bright morning star. Now, thirdly, and finally, he is the eternal in the midst of uncertainty. We have heard this statement so often. I'm afraid sometimes it might just wash over us. But he says in verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And again, as we just think of these things, we have to struggle to attach some meaning to it. What does it make a difference? Why is this so important? Why is it so frequently repeated? In Scripture, and particularly in this last book of Scripture, in Revelation, over and over again, in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Or in a few verses later, in Revelation 1.10, I was in the spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. All those times within such a short a space, and then, and even in the letters to the churches in chapter 2, verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last. Who was dead and came to life? Do not fear any of the things which you're about to suffer. Maybe there's a connection here. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. He is telling them about suffering that is about to come. Now you must say, if you... Imagine we're the church in Smyrna and we've received a letter and we're opening it up. What does it say to us? The church in Gateshead, you're going to suffer. That's what's on the letter. We say we're going to suffer. What are we going to do? We're, we're shaking in our boots. This is not good. Before he tells us that piece of news, he tells us something else. He says, these things say the first and the last. Who was dead and came to life? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the creator of all things and he will be there through the end. And when all the sources of your persecution lie in the dust and when all the things that were trouble to you in this life lie in the distant past till they begin to fade in their memory, Christ will still be there and he ever shall be there. That's why we don't need to fear because he is the eternal 
in the midst of whatever uncertainty, whatever suffering it might be, he is eternal. And therefore, because of that, he can ask us, he can demand of us. He doesn't say, a suffering and uh, you, you better run. You better compromise to get out of that suffering. Actually, he, he goes, he turns it up a couple notches, even that, to that church of Smyrna. He says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be temptations. They're going to try to get you to compromise and to turn away and to apostatize from Christ. That's what the world is going to do. I know about these things, and I'm telling you about them in advance. And moreover, I'm saying to you, be faithful until death. Now, I couldn't do that. None of us could. doesn't matter how good the organization that we have on this earth. And I've had the great privilege of working with some wonderful institutions and organizations. And they ask a lot of me. They couldn't ask me to go beyond what could be done in this life because they didn't have the power of eternity in their hands. If you're going to take something, if you're going to ask someone to sacrifice something for you, you better be able and to be in a position to restore it to them. You know, sometimes when our children are uncertain about giving time or giving something or giving of themselves and whatever, their uncertainty is because they don't recognize that their parents can easily restore it to them. That little toy that they're so worried about, I can buy a hundred of them. They don't understand. It just, it, you know, it's a 50 pence toy. And they're so worried about those things. When we can say, we can, you can sacrifice that, you can give that up because it's in our hands to restore it. Well, let me say that that is what Jesus tells us about our lives. He can ask us to give up our lives in this world because it is in his hand to restore it a hundredfold, a millionfold. It is in his hands to give us eternal life beyond our wildest dreams in the eternity to come in the new heavens and the new earth. He can say to us, be faithful unto death. Why? Because he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so this story is repeated throughout Revelation of him being the first and the last. In fact, in chapter 21, he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. As if to say to him, see, I told you it was going to come to an end. See, I told you all things were in my hand. And in fact, all these things have been given to us in uh, a, a foreknowledge of these things. It's been given to us in this vision of revelation that we might see exactly how things are going to end. Because in principle, they have all already been done in Christ. Now, it's not just, of course, the church in Smyrna that's in such a situation. You see, if we open our letter today to the church in Gateshead, it would say the very same thing. Some of you are about to suffer. We know this because God's unconditional word to all of his people is that as many as who want his desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We know this moreover because that uh, the word of God unconditionally to his people is that I'm going to send you trials for your own good and for my own glory. I'm going to send you trials to test your faith, to increase your faith and to complete your character, to make you more like Christ. I'm going to do these things and all that requires suffering. 
So as we open our letter this morning, we must know that the very same thing that was going to happen to the church of Smyrna is going to happen to us. But the very same author of that letter, the one that is the author of these trials and these, these difficulties, is the author of the word to us that says, he is the Alpha and the Omega. We need not fear. More than once, those things are connected. In the midst of fear, Jesus appears as his fixed point, as the one who is the same throughout all eternity. He appears as the one thing, as you imagine in a, in a, in a boat, in a storm-tossed little boat, and these giant waves, and these winds, and the rain, and the darkness, and you can't see much. There is one thing that you can see, this bright and morning star, the fixed point by which we navigate all other things. He says he is the beginning and the end, and therefore we need not fear. Now, of course, to be in such a position, we have to have Christ. And I suppose I would ask, next, do you have the root of life in you? Because that's really important. Something as we go through, for instance, Christianity Explored with people, we eventually get to the parable of the sower and the seeds. And we talk about the different conditions of the word of God. Jesus is sowing the word of God. And it falls into different situations. And some spring up immediately. And, and yet, sadly, they, they, they shrivel up as, as soon as they come. And what it says in Mark 4, 16, these likewise, in Jesus' own inerrant explanation of this parable, these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. They have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. They have no root in themselves. That's the problem with them. So that in an external way, in their own flesh, they have received this word and they receive it with joy. But the question is, do you have the root in you? Do you have the source of life? Because Jesus Christ has come not just to offer some information about himself. He's not just come to offer some sort of deal. He is offering himself. And those who have truly put their faith in him have him as well. They have him living. He says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to come make my home with you. He says, even the Father is going to come. He's certainly going to send the Spirit to be with us. And we're going to have, therefore, this root of the triune God living within our souls. And therefore, one of the great demonstrations of that is when persecution comes, because it's coming. Not if by the off chance, one in a hundred of you might face persecution, then you'll notice this interesting characteristic of the true Christian is that he's not going to fall down. He's going to carry on because he has the root of life in, in him. But of course, some of you may never live to see such a Christian no, he says, when persecution arises, because it's going to happen in each and every case, then you'll see, then you'll have the evidence, and you'll know. Other people will know, and you yourself will know which situation you're in. Because when this persecution comes, the Christian, the true Christian who has put their faith in Christ will still be there. Because it's the inevitable consequence of having this root of life. 
You know how Christ came as a root in the midst of a dry and thirsty land, in this cracked land. And they couldn't get to him in the end. They tried. They tried to get to him. They tried to kill him. But when you're the root of life, there's nothing that anyone can do about that. It's nothing that no matter what kind of darkness, what kind of lifelessness and and spiritually dead people attack, they can't do anything against the root of life. And so Christ is still there. He's still here now. He's risen. And so it is with us. That although we are so very weak, in fact, if nothing else, we are going to be fine in the midst of our trials and suffering. We're going to find out just how weak we are. That's one of the reasons why we're given those things, to find out just how weak we are in ourselves. But we're also going to find out one other thing, that the root of life is real and powerful and will not let us fall will not let us die spiritually. And that's going to be demonstrated absolutely to us. And so I'd say to us, secondly, now is not the time to despair. I know that we're tempted to despair sometimes. But now is not the time because you have seen the great and morning star. And again, I I don't know if there's ever been a time where you're greatly looking forward to the morning coming. And you look out and you see the morning star and you realize it's all going to be okay. This is just a little matter of time until the great sun comes out in all of his strength. And Christ is both of those things. Right now he is the morning star. For those who live in darkness and were waiting for the dawn of, of the, the consummation of all things... He has yet appeared to us as that morning star. But having seen him, we know that soon enough the sun will appear, that he will appear in all of his glory and greatness. And there's no reason for us to despair. There's no, there's no reason for us to change our methods or our message. Jesus is the great fixed point that we fall in the midst of all the chaos. That's the great wonderful thing about Christ is that he's ever the same. And just because of that, in, our, in the midst of change, In this world, we can follow him and none other. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain with the Lord. Knowing that your labor is not in vain, it would be if you were working for Buddha or for Muhammad or whoever. It's because they've come and they've gone. But it's not with Jesus because he's that fixed point. He is the morning star who will soon enough become the sun and he is able, therefore, to keep us and reward us and we need not despair. And finally, I'd say, if you found this morning star and look, the, the situation is truly, we live in a place of darkness. There's no sugarcoating that. There's no way of whitewashing that reality. We look around and it is a dry and thirsty land. You speak to people about Jesus and they just don't want to know. They just aren't bothered with these things at all. They're almost beyond sometimes vehement opposition. They're almost beyond that. And and sometimes you get that and sometimes you just get complete. I just don't care. Can't be bothered. Makes no difference to me at all. It's a dry and thirsty land. It's great darkness. But we who have seen this light ought to convey it to others. 
We who have seen this morning star, you know, Luke 11:33 says, No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp is the body of the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good and your whole body is also full of light, but when your eye is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. And what it's saying is that both in your words, the things that you say, and also in the things you do, that you be children of this light, that you let your light shine, it not be put in a secret place or on a basket or in a lampstand, but that others might see that light because they desperately do need it, don't they? They desperately need it. They don't need another source of darkness. They don't need another reflection, if such could be, of the world. They've got enough of that. They're surrounded by it constantly. What they need is a glimmer of light, of you uh, saying the words, and of you living the life in accordance with your Christian profession, that they might also come to see this great light, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross in order that your sins might be paid for, that believing in him, we might be saved. They need to know that as well. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the light of Jesus Christ. How desperately we have been looking forward to this ray of light, we who live in such darkness. How much we have been searching for a root of life when we are in such a dry and thirsty land. How much we desire a fixed point when everything seems to be in constant change and, and chaos even. Lord, we're thankful that Christ is all this and much more. We're thankful that the morning star has risen in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you might, through the great power of the Holy Spirit, bring this light to others as well. And we pray for those who are yet in darkness among us that you would open their eyes and their hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and that this gospel might bring to them this root of life, that they would not just receive the good tidings with joy, not knowing what they believe in and not truly having put their faith in Christ, but, Lord, that they would be solidly converted and that they would have the root of life in them that even when persecution comes, rather than it knocking them down, it would be proof positive to themselves and to everyone around that they are truly your people and that this would bring you great glory and that this morning star would go greater and brighter in our sight and in those around us until the great day comes. Help us, Lord, indeed, to live in accordance with his light and living according to your law and that the gospel of peace might be on our lips. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.